0: Pop culture gets charter schools wrong again. The conservatives continue to hate the gays. Mississippi outdoes the Yankee states on education and the school open crowd continues to crow. Let's talk about it on today's The Citizen Stewart show.
1: Well, Chris, happy Halloween, man. Uh how old are your kids right now? So, I have arranged kids. The
0: pecking order goes from 31 down to 11 about to turn. 12.
1: So does that mean you're going to be going door to door this evening with your children?
0: No, that means I'm going to be standing at the door eating candy and handing out candy while they go with their friends because they don't like their family anymore. Like they're too big for their family. They're, they're young enough to go still. And they're old enough to do it, you know, kind of on their own. They don't want, want us hanging around.
1: You know, it's funny. I, I could see you going either way, like being like super over the top fun on Halloween with your kids or like Captain Fantastic where like in the woods, <laughs> you're not going anywhere. So I'm glad your kids are making it out there. We'll, we'll circle back to that theory I have about you when we talk about school closures, but uh, well, that's good. Yeah, I... I it's. I've been far removed from the Halloween culture for a little while. I used to run a haunted house in our school uh, when I was running schools in Tennessee. That was really over the top and scary, and used way too many public dollars uh, for smoke machines and <laughs> robots and everything. But the kids loved it. They used to. We used to. They used to be my cast in our haunted house. It was. We had a whole haunted school story.
0: Yeah, I'm not that into it. Not that as much as I should be. That's I, not a surprise. Know. Yeah, it's not no, supposed... Well, okay, yeah, get off my lawn.
1: Your war on fun right. continues.
0: No. <laughs>
1: well, okay, well, let's pour some more cold water on some fun here. There's the show, Abbott Elementary. Uh, before we get into are three things that we always talk about, what makes us mad, what makes us hopeful, and what makes us think. We're going to talk about the show Abbott Elementary. Chris, what was this episode? Paint a picture for our audience because they don't need to see it. We just want to briefly take a moment to opine about how pop culture continues to get schools and school politics wrong. What was this episode? What was it all about?
0: So uh, folks go to watch it. It's the September 28th episode is called Wrong Delivery. And in the show, the well-meaning teachers of Abbott Elementary, which is a Philadelphia public, traditional public school, they get sent a group of books. The books are brand new and they look amazing. The teachers uh, not being used to seeing new things come to their school realize that it's the wrong delivery. The books actually were meant for the charter school up the street. So that sets them on, uh, you know, hilarity ensues. The teachers go together to bring the books to the charter school so that they can spy on it. When they get there, they find that the charter school is actually being led by a teacher who has been fired from their school for kicking a student. And, uh, and the teacher, you know, is happy to see them and takes the books from them and says, you know, oh, you know, that whole kicking the kid thing. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's good that we don't have as much oversight over here, basically, at a charter school. Uh, and our hiring practices are a little different. Um, and, you know, they go on to see that the charter school is overfunded has way more stuff than the traditional public schools, is living on way more money and dollars and everything's glossy and beautiful and 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 they have no accountability and 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 that's it. That's kind of the narrative that Abbott Elementary is giving to people when we're talking about a country where the majority of people don't know what a charter school is.
1: Just to start, if anybody's like listening to this podcast doesn't know what a charter school is, they are in almost every state, there are a few exceptions, but in almost every state, they are nonprofit public schools that are run independent of the school districts, which is true in Philadelphia. And I don't know where to start with the misinformation here, but I think the biggest one to me is that charter schools somehow receive more money. Than traditional public schools. This has been studied. And I'll just point to one study from Cato. They looked in 2018 to 18 different cities and found that charters received over $7,000 less per student than traditional public schools, a 33% disparity. They also found that traditional public schools got more philanthropic dollars, which is also a myth about charter schools that we somehow get all these, you know, this philanthropy that means that we have even more money. So, and this was true of the schools I ran. We had fewer dollars than the traditional public schools around us. And we also didn't get free buildings and we didn't get to take advantage of the economies of scale and things like transportation. So I would say that's a, that's a starting point of uh, what this, this episode gets wrong. But Well, I mean, the show
0: is a comedy, right? It's a lot like community. So if you watch this show, it's funny. And it really is. It gets a lot – it takes a lot of jabs at public education. But the teachers remain harmless, even when they're feckless or can't do their job very well. They're they're humanized, and and uh, so it's very much from that perspective. It's very much not just a public education show, but it's a public education, teacher, district, traditional show for those. And it's really funny if you look at it within that context. It's not so funny when you think about the fact that the majority of charter schools are kids of color. They house kids of color. The majority of charter schools nationally um, are are. Uh, Diverse schools, especially in urban areas that are literally doing better for kids that desperately need another option, but they are just an ordinary now, they're just an ordinary part of the public education portfolio of things that are offered to kids. We don't see this much attention paid to, for instance, magnet schools especially magnet schools that pick their students based upon test scores, you don't have charter schools that do that, right? Charter schools are like the working man's magnet schools, right? But they are are definitely for a population that needs those schools. And that's what I think shows like this, they do a real disservice, even in Philly, where this show is like, uh, uh, where the show is supposed to be. There are many kids benefiting from black-led, black-run charter schools that are offering a different opportunity to kids that can't get into some of their nicer magnet schools, for instance. When you get all these people who come out and go to Hollywood or do these things, oftentimes it's just so weird how some of them come from either private schools or selective magnet schools. Or here's my favorite. We talked about this in a different show that I did. Uh, around, like, uh, for many people in black culture who went to, were church-going culture, there's such such thing as the PKs, like, pastor's kids. Pastor's kids are kind of like off on their own. They do their own thing in a way, and they're a little godly and self-righteous because their parents are pastors. This is a generalization, and I'm okay with generalizations when they, when they fit.
1: I know. I'm, gonna, I'm banking that statement for when, when I need to generalize against you. It'll
0: never work against me. But I only use it when it's true. But teacher's kids, when you have, when you grow up in a pensionista household, like when your parents, both your parents are either teachers or principals in the traditional system, of course you grow up with this kind of self righteous attitude about being in the main line of schools because you were held harmless from some of the worst schools in your city. It's called staff preference, people.
1: <laughs> like, well, yeah, to me, it's the Pleasantville. It's the Pleasantville phenomenon. Like when I talk Absolutely. to, you know, there's there's a school board member. I won't name her uh, because I oh, don't- Oh, come on. What yeah. fun is that? <laughs> well, what fun well, is I that? Had a, I, had a, uh, I had a school board member, you know who she was in Nashville. She sent her kid mm-hmm. to a magnet but would talk about how charters were, you know, siphoning the kids off and all of that. Uh, But what I often felt in having debates with her to the extent she would even debate directly was that she had this view of the public school system that it was like this Pleasantville system because that's what it was to her and her kids, which is, oh, yeah, I'm walking to school, picket fence, saying hi to the mailman on the way to school. And to her, the neighborhood school, which she's trying to defend, you know, put aside the fact that the magnet School is a threat to that neighborhood school as much as anything else. But let's pretend that she's pure on the neighborhood school phenomenon. She pictures in her head the Pleasantville phenomenon where everything's shiny and beautiful and all the kids look like her kids and everything is safe and homogenous and all the way that she wants it. She doesn't think about what it was like in North Nashville, where When you go, I I used to go do school visits with John Little, who you know, and we'd go to schools and we'd be breaking up fights. There would be no adult in sight. We'd just be going to a school just to go see uh, you know, what the options are for the kids who don't go to our school or to do an information session about the opportunities in our school. And you literally can walk in like you're walking into the mall, nobody stopping Mm -hmm. you, Mm -hmm. you know, no adults there, breaking up kids. And I'm like, to her. Pleasantville is what she pictures, but to the kids in our neighborhood it was a way I think different you're reality. Her too much
0: credit though. I don't think so. There's no way that she pictures Pleasantville because if she's a school board member, she's visited most every school in her district and And if you and if you were to ask her about any school in the district, she's probably been there. I was a school board member. It's part of your job to go to all the different schools. You do ribbon cuttings and you do I know the school board member that you're talking about, too, by the way. Yeah. she knows what the worst schools in that district looks like. So if you want to put a white progressive like her on the hot seat, tell them if you think so fondly of these schools, put your ch- your children or your child in the worst performing. Uh, Blackest school in your district And then we will know you're telling the truth Then we will know how much you love It's like the Bee Gees theory How deep is your love If you really love public (laughs) schools so much You love these public schools so much man. Cool, find the worst performing Blackest a school in your district and put your kid in those schools and we'll know how much you love public education.
1: Right. Well, okay. Well, I'm going to take a step back though and get back to the show. There is some truth in this episode, and I'm not an avid watcher of Abbott Elementary. It routinely comes up that they don't have money for this. They don't have money for that. They don't have money for maintenance. They can't paint the wall the right color because there's some kind of bureaucracy. Now that's true. Now where (laughs) they draw the lines of causation, like I think part of the theory of the people like this creator, I imagine, and certainly that school board member that we talked about is that there's not enough money in the system which is a gross simplification and also depends on where you are, right? is a very different reality in Arizona, for instance, than New York. But what we could say for sure is that money is not spent well and that tri- traditional public school teachers, principals, like we talked about last week, they have a lot of red tape that prevents them from doing their jobs. That doesn't exempt anybody from, you know, like performance and like showing up every day energetic for kids. Like that is a requirement of the job. So this is not an excuse for anybody. But it is true that trying to get the the wall painted, or get toilet paper ordered, as Eva Moskowitz famously pointed out, like famously pointed out, like these are things are way harder to do in the system than they should be. That they get right, I think.
0: I mean, um, they're also a blue city in a red state that hates the blue city, right? So yes, yeah, semi-red um, state. Yeah. For years, uh, the state underfunded Philly in a way that was pretty gross and savage. They corrected it over time. But there was a lot of, in like a lot of states, you have a state government that's different than the metropolitan area. I live in Minnesota. The way that outstate Minnesota feels about Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities, is pretty interesting. The way that Tennessee feels in some ways about Memphis and Nashville is kind of interesting, right? Like it's not the only state situation where, the way that Jackson in uh, Mississippi is treated different than the rest of the state, the way that Flint in Michigan is treated a little different, even when it's not a completely red state, uh, you find that urban centers get shorted or, or you know hurt or harmed in funding schemes sometimes. So in Philly, it is true. There's a point of truth to the fact that for years, they had an uneven funding system that shorted uh, Philly and they fixed it. But to your point, there's also like a thousand layers of Unnecessary bureaucracy. You send a dollar to Philly, and by the time it gets to a kid, it's like thirty cents. Now, making up those numbers, I'm just saying it's. I'm making a point.
1: Yeah, no, I hear you. That
0: money doesn't all get to the building. Doesn't all get to the kids.
1: Right. Well, let's let's stay on the topic of school board members for a second and talk about this new data coming from the seventy four. And this is the thing. This is the this is what makes us mad, Chris. Walk us through this data. I think this was published by the 74. We have some data about representation uh, across our school boards in America.
0: Yeah. So Beth Hawkins, writing for the 74, Beth Hawkins, a friend of the show, by the way, writes about the Victory Institute who has collected a clearinghouse of information on LGBTQ candidates for school board and elected officials across the country and has found out of 90,000 United States school board members, uh, 90 90 out of 90,000, which is uh, 0.1% are known to be LGBTQ. Of those, uh, 20, 29% of them are cisgender uh, women, four are trans women, two are trans men, and two are non-binary. So the majority of them are actually uh, gay, cisgender men, and that's just of the 0.1%. Very small fraction, definitely underperforms the 7% of U.S. uh, adults that identify as LGBTQ, not to include even the ones who are part of that community and don't identify because of stigma and other reasons. But the thing that makes me mad about this isn't that they exist. The thing that makes me mad is that 47% of them have uh, been harassed as either a candidate uh, and uh, 51%—candidate or board member—and 51% have been verbally assaulted while in office. It is still unsafe even at the school level. And this ties in to what we talked about before representation uh, to be gay uh, on school boards, um, but also in the curriculum, we're seeing kind of a national conservative movement constantly to scapegoat this population. And you think about any population that's 7% of the United States uh, population, it's easy to scapegoat. It's easy to turn people against uh, small groups of people like this and make them the problem of everything. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy making and it has no place in public education because those schools are for everyone. They're for every American. I don't care how big your population.
1: I'm obviously in favor of more representation on school boards. I think I'm a little bit skeptical of the self reporting of uh, harassment, in part because, you know, the roll call, for example, like even if we take that data at face value, just that the self reporting of it is accurate, which, for instance, that school board member that I mentioned earlier she probably says that like our parents harass her for asking her to represent their views, right? Like a lot of these people throw around harassment when they're in elected office and it's often unclear what they mean by that. But even if we took them at their word that 47% are being verbally assaulted to use their term – If you compare that to other data we know about elected officials who report similar numbers, it's actually not that uncommon. It might not even be that this particular population is facing an outsized amount of harassment. So, for example, uh, Roll Call uh, did a, uh, a survey of members of Congress since 2020, and out of the 147 who responded to the survey, 110, which is 75%, said that they received a death threat since taking office. That's 75% of a death threat. So my sense is elected officials across the country are reporting uh, harassment of some kind. I think there's obviously some fire uh, where that smoke is. I think I'm not sure that, that this is a problem that's unique to this particular population. I'm sure it is in certain places, but this data doesn't tell me enough if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, I don't know what I would be searching for there though. I mean, I don't first of all I don't know that there's any claim that it's unique to this population except for it's unique to this population, yeah. right? Like the your your very identity being the thing that draws upon you fire no matter where you go is different than someone who gets into office and gets the the usual Harassment for saying boneheaded or stupid things. I mean, I do think racial harassment, sexual identity harassment, uh, is something that you live with and walk with differently than, say, a tra- you know uh, a, a cisgender white male who gets people complaining about his position on taxes uh, and threatens them because of positions on their taxes have nothing to do with their identity, right? Like in a, in all the places they walk through the world. So I don't know. I mean. You know, it's a good point that, you know, all politicians right now are on the hot seat. And I mean, we just watched something happen with Nancy Pelosi's husband in in San Francisco that doesn't appear to be an identity related uh, uh, harassment case. And, you know, Capitol Police nationally are having to think of all the ways that they protect all of the you know, all of Congress, because they don't all get, like, strong security when they go home. They've had to think of different ways to to um, to protect them, because in the Trump era, like, harassment and violence uh, went up through the roof, actually, for the political class, period. But you add on top of that an identity for violence. And I do think it's different. I do think it's unique uh, to uh, people that are either sexual or, or racial minorities in the United States to have this additional layer of harassment always at at bay. Like you just can't go anywhere yeah. without it. Yeah. I
1: think like to, to clarify my position on this, this data doesn't convince me there's a unique problem to that population, but there are other things happening that tell me there is some malicious behavior happening. And you, you don't have to look too far. There's the Don't Say Gay Bill. Uh, there's also this uh, proposed legislation from 30 House Republicans that's seeking to ban federally funded institutions from pro- promoting material that acknowledges gender identity, gender dysphoria, transgender people, and sexual orientation uh, for children under 10 years old. Now, I think there are, there are contours of this debate that are very complicated. Like I don't know enough to know about how much are we just trying to avoid all topics of sex generally and how much of this is that versus sexual orientation, which is different, versus gender, which is different. But I can say with relative certainty that uh, the motivations here seem very suspect and it seems like the, uh, this is more politically motivated than motivated in the interests of children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't think there's anything that serves kids by harassing people because of their identities or, you know, harassing families because of the way that they're constructed or, you know, attacking people for who they love. I I don't see anything positive about that. As a matter of fact, I I see it as part and parcel to a declining empire um, that we allow that intelligent people in the United States allow these type of scapegoating uh, tactics to proliferate in the political process, like it makes no sense. Like we can see it for what it is, right? We can see it for what it is. There's no reason. They're not, you know, drag queen uh, reading hours all across the country in every school district to the point where it actually should be showing up in congressional ads for um, for politicians who want to serve their, their state as congresspeople, right? There's no right. good reason for that. It's not good for kids. It's not good for families. It doesn't make us a more inclusive United States. It doesn't do anything for the political process except for literate with a bunch of trash. Uh, that it gets people angry and upset and can you believe those right. people? can you believe what they're doing? can you there's nothing positive about yeah. that right like the, the political system needs an enema at this point because we're, we're so full of it like like uh, um, the hate the the calling out the you know groups of people just to, on their characteristics doesn't make any sense to me It's not good for kids, not good
1: for yeah schools. I had some debates around the Florida bill. And often, what would happen in the Florida Don't Say Gay bill debate is it was deliberately written uh, vague. Derek Thompson of The Atlantic and others have have written extensively about the vagueness being the point of the law. And what would happen is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would say, well, these teachers they're worried that, for instance, sharing, you know, an a, an example from their their personal life, like, oh, I was talking to my husband this morning uh, over breakfast, and and he said that. You know, you you can like, you know, yada, 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 but I said yada, 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 like something that you would expect your teacher in elementary school to do. Like Mrs. Williamson, my fifth grade teacher, would routinely talk about her husband and like it was like a running gag in the classroom. There were teachers who were just like, I'm not sure I can mention my husband if it's a same-sex couple because – of the way this law is written. And then the people who are, were pro that law would be like, well, that's not what the law means. And I'll be like, well, that's if, uh, let me read you the law. Like this is a reasonable interpretation of law. And, and it's the point of it was to kind of wrap people up in knots so that there was a climate of fear so that the, the law could be read either way, but the consequences are extreme, right? Either criminal penalties or the loss of your teaching license, the loss of your job, Right. And so that climate of fear is a part of it. And they're often writing these things so expansively that they try to make us look ridiculous for catastrophizing it when it's anybody's guess as to what these laws are going to mean in practice.
0: And now they're looking at nationalizing that law. Right. That's the that's the new wrinkle on this. Is there's an attempt to create a national version or federal version of this law? It's not meant to serve any political end except for to tie up schools in unnecessary kind of division and uh, and lock up schools so that they look like they're failed, so that the districts look like they're failed, and it creates kind of a, the conditions. Uh, Right for people exiting the school system. So, this is an anti public school um, uh, strategy, theory of change. Uh, and part of it, I mean, just like, listen, we just talked about school board members. There's 90,000 school board members, but many of them run unopposed. And there's a national network of conservative organizations that are training people with toolkits specifically to run for school board, not with a pro education message, but literally to go on to the school boards and tie them up in meaningless, meaningless debates about things that don't cause forward uh, movement, but actually tie them up in stasis. And we're already seeing the result of it. You see some school boards in Tennessee and other places where slates of these kind of conservative, empty, uh, vacant kind of uh, single issue MAGA types come onto a school board and suddenly all the normal routine business that's really just kind of boring business of the district gets held up as they start pulling books from shelves and saying, how did Lawn Boy get into mm-hmm. the school you know, library? Now you're having multiple publicly funded taxpayer meetings where people are sitting around just talking about a book as if this is like some sort of Trump circus. And I think that's the goal. The goal is to tie up more schools in this kind of stasis uh, for political ends. Um, for those of us that want schools to work and work well, those of us who want 50 million kids to walk into school districts every day and get a better and better and better chance and shot at doing well in life, we don't need this. This is not going to be good for yeah. us.
1: Well, let's let's move on to some uh – a reason for hope, something that makes us hope, which is- There is no hope. Which is Mississippi, (laughs) my former state. I I actually started Mississippi's first charter school, Reimagine Prep, which is still going strong all these years later. uh, I helped them with their charter school law, and I've worked with a lot of people down in that state who've been trying to improve that school system. And they just, uh, as everybody else did across the country, they got their NAEP data- Now, Chris, before I talk about this data, what is NAEP for listeners who don't know what this is?
0: It's often called the nation's report card. It's a sampling of students. It's a national assessment of educational uh, progress is the actual name of NAEP. Uh, It's literally a sampling of students in every state and in some cities and some local districts to get a pulse on how students are doing from year to year. And it goes back further than most tests that we take. So it's been ongoing for, for decades. Um, and it's what we use to see since the 70s to see generally how the nation is doing.
1: Yeah. So, and Mississippi posted, I think, better than expected results on this report card. Like it was always a running joke. Like people in Alabama would say, thank God for Mississippi because it would routinely rank below Alabama on most metrics, including educational metrics. Now, I don't want to overstate Mississippi's progress on a lot of these metrics. It still is. Uh, got a long way to go on most livability and and economic mobility metrics, but the 2022 results show that Mississippi fourth graders scored at the national average of both reading and math. Uh, they posted significant gains in fourth grade reading and math since 2011, and it's the only state. Uh, it and Miss and Washington D.C. are the only two jurisdictions that improved over a ten-year period. Ten-year period in two of the four core coordinate subjects. So uh, and. There's more mixed results in the eighth grade, but this is... I think good news for a state that has been working really hard to improve the standing of kids. Now, we don't want to overinterpret the NAEP data, but there is also some promising data at the state level on their own state assessments, too, that we could add to this to say historic NAEP data, a couple cycles in a row, plus the state-level data tells us there may be something right happening in the state of Mississippi.
0: Well, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, that's great. Is it metaphysical? Is it, did you know, did it just manifest itself like, you know, voodoo? You know, Mississippi actually retrained its teachers from the top down in the science of reading. They took actual systemic steps to improve their teaching and their, their learning apparatus, and they took it seriously in ways that other states didn't. Some states actually did, as you say, Ravi, like they always used Mississippi as the whipping boy, but they did something technical actually to make difference. And you only do that if you believe that the system can be improved and kids aren't the problem. So the thing that I've hammered on for years is the belief gap. Like we, if you can't believe, if you believe that being in poverty is actually its own kind of punishment and you'll never succeed in school, if you believe that poor kids can't learn, if you believe that all tests tell us are the, you know, the education level of parents. Like if that's the type of stuff you're walking around with, you won't even try to improve teaching and learning. You won't even try to retrain teachers. And here's a state that is very poor with lots of kids of color um, who did do something systemic that has paid off for them. I get your hesitation. You don't want to like, oh my God, this is the you know this is the best thing ever revelation. I get that, but in a ten year period, they outpaced people in terms they're they're the national leader in the in the amount of gains that they made for one, um, going from a lagger to being ahead of others, and that that's worthy of reporting. And it should make people say, well, what did they do? Not stop at some metaphysical answer, but dig in. Uh, People locally in the state obviously would tell you to be cautious about the way that you look at it. But to hell with caution when you have so many people in so many states who uh, chalk up poor performance in schools solely to poverty. Um, or to inter- intergenerational problems that have nothing to do with schooling, teaching, learning, or any of those well, things. Well,
1: I called over to a few of my friends out of Mississippi, who have been working on this stuff for a while, and they pointed to the literacy initiatives that you were talking about. And your shout out to Jim Barksdale, the former CEO of Netscape, who's been funding. A lot of literacy interventions across the state for many, many years. Uh, But a lot of people pointed me to a policy that's gotten underreported, which is in 2013, the state enacted what was called the Literacy Based Promotion Act, where they said if you're in third grade and you do not have a passing reading score, then you may not get to the fourth grade. And there were some exceptions where you can apply for waivers for students with disabilities, et cetera. But this has been a, f- this has been the most aggressive aggressive version of this law across the country. And this does not seem accidental when it comes to the data. This is third grade reading scores for a fourth grade test that we're talking about. And there's a a ton of studies, there were two studies that came out of Florida recently that talk about Florida's sort of experimentation with a similar law that seemed to show that it's not just about short-term gains, like there are certain long-term outcomes that you could point to to say, all right, whether it's advanced placement uh, uh, courses, fewer remedial courses, higher grade point averages, et cetera, that there are positive effects of having aggressive retention policies like this in place. Interestingly, the graduation rates uh, didn't go, weren't improved, at least according to the Florida study. Uh, But this seems like a tough choice that's controversial that Mississippi made that, could be related to this data.
0: Yeah, you know that's like a third rail. <laughs> like you're hitting. Well, let's go those, there.
1: That's what you know, we're here like, for.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, no, I mean, like, listen. Normally, I wouldn't be in favor of that sort of thing. I'd, I'd fight you on this one.
1: I'm not saying. Florida, I'm just saying, saying this is what the data I, like. This seems like a relevant point of data. It would seem weird to overlook this fact. You know, yeah. like it seems.
0: If you're people listening to this right now, Ravi wants to hold your kids Well, why back. not? That's the important thing to yeah. know to listeners. <laughs> I, I mean,
1: look, if I were teaching Ravi's karate dojo, I'm not handing out black belts just for time spent in the dojo. You got to be able to do some karate kicks. Why not? You know?
0: That's called seniority. No. What is wrong with you? That is, like I think it's in the best know, interest of the kid. I've been in this dojo the I longest. I think it's in the best interest
1: of the kid to not lie to them. And just say you're you're at a fourth grade level when you're not at a fourth grade level. That's that's my general philosophy of schools. You know, I have other philosophies.
0: Yeah, I don't have any philosophy yeah. on this. Like I like to think about these things case by case. This one progressives would push back on you, I think, um, because because it would probably shake out that if you looked at who is being held behind, uh, who's who's being held back, the consequences for them. Uh, the lack of chances for remediation or acceleration, the the self-esteem hit and blow that might actually result in even the opposite of what you want. Probably that's what progressive researchers would come back at you with this. I don't know that I side with them on that. I'm only raising it as an issue because you go one direction. The Florida example is a great example, period, of it settles some of the debate because kids actually, because Florida was one of the states where they got kids. They, they also, like Mississippi, were laggard. Uh, at the beginning of Governor Bush's time there, and by the time he left, they were leader. So, I mean, there was a 300% increase in black and brown um, uh, AP exam, for example, AP exam passers, not takers, but actually took it and passed over time. When you see that type of progress in a state, you have to kind of... It has to answer some of the questions, even if you don't like what they did. Or yeah, they and obviously there
1: was a lot that went into Bush's policy that could be totally unrelated to the retention policy. But I think it's worth trying more of these uh, across the country. And certain states are moving in this direction. So we'll get more and more data. We'll get more and more data about the effects of the Mississippi policy and data about other states that are trying this. I think it belies a certain philosophy, right? Which is there's a lot wrapped up in this, like how hard are we trying to get the kids to learn? Are we doing everything we possibly can to help the kids succeed, et cetera? But at base, I think it is worth exploring this question of social promotion, right? Like it, it, And I think it's not as easy as progressives make it sound, that it's like mean to the kid or something. I think it's mean to the kid to lie to them too. Yeah, I don't want a kid in, you know, freshman year of high school who's 25 years old, right? But I also don't want a kid in freshman year of high school who can't read. So we've got to avoid
0: that. You know, between being mean to them, you know, between being mean to kids and lying to them, there's a wealth of other possibilities in the middle. So I probably wouldn't do a Aristotle Aristotle kind of like a fallacy of the excluded middle between lying to kids and pushing them forward, you know, um, and and being mean to them. There's probably lots of possibilities of what you can yeah. do, right? Subgrades or you know. Um, uh, additional like you go on to the next grade but it's not simple social promotion right. there are like things put into place and supports that help you accelerate faster in the first part of the year than the second part or things like that yeah. right there are things that could be done i do think this is that might be a i better do think ballast.
1: this is possibly that middle ground because it's not like they're implementing this in every grade in every subject they have one checkpoint mm-hmm. with waivers mm-hmm. so it's like it is it still isn't like even as aggressive as i'd probably be on this but it's But it is giving us some interesting data. And I think, once again, I'll take a step back and I'll heed what Morgan Polakoff and other writers have have cautioned us against, which is taking... Any one point in time in the NAEP data and trying to say too much about it. I think you have to put it together with the studies we have out of Florida, including other studies that say the opposite, including other state level data in Mississippi and other states and yada yada yada. But that's not good podcasting, Chris. So we're going to try to simplify. We're going to try to simplify where we can, and let's let's bring that lens. Of simplification to this debate that probably has – there's no more simplified debate in public education, I think, over than the question of school closures. This is the one thing that made us think, which is the NAEP data has just kicked off a new round of debate over the effect of school closures on student learning Chris, you and I, I think, have very different views of what this data is telling us. Why don't you take the floor first? I'm going to clear the dance floor for you. Why don't you you lead us in in an electric slide or whatever it is that your generation was doing on the dance floor here?
0: I'm terribly disinterested in this topic, right? I'm terrifically disinterested in the, the questions aren't open for discussion or open for debate. School closures and the pandemic weren't good for kids, duh. Closing schools and having a global pandemic where people are dying and where you're having to mitigate kind of public health concerns on the spot with no kind of precedent is not good for kids. Duh, right? So I feel like there's a nation of people that want to have this conversation because they want to do the armchair I told you so stuff. And they want to kind of like continuously re- relitigate as if it's even up for debate whether it was supposed to be good for kids. It was never supposed to be good. Like the, like this article that we had before us, like the Atlantic, school closures, did they work? What do you mean did they work? Like what, did, was this like an intervention strategy? Do we think we were going to raise reading scores or math scores by closing schools, did anybody ever suggest that, like that, we were going to do anything other than stop well, kids from well, killing I mean, their grandmas <laughs> because they went to school?
1: And, and the piece the piece you're talking about is uh, Derek Thompson, which the, the headline that I see here is "School Closures Were a Failed Policy," and I think what he's saying. When he's talking about whether it was a effective or ineffective policy wasn't like the narrow question of whether keeping kids out of school was good for the kid or not in isolation but whether the cost benefit trade-off of keeping kids out of school as long as we did was worth the equivalent public health trade-off and obviously it's not a simple question because in different places we let kids back in school at wildly different, on wildly different timelines, right? New York City, for example, is very different than San Francisco. And so I like this piece in part because it just, it points to a few studies. Matt Barnum, Chalkbeat, they've been doing some great stuff. Uh, um, I think her name's Kaylin Belsha uh, at Chalkbeat and, and Matt Barnum looked at the NAEP data and other studies and they had a pretty measured take on it, which they said essentially, by most data points, schools that closed, when you look at the aggregate national data, schools that closed, that were stayed closed longer, had worse academic outcomes for kids than the schools that didn't. There are definitely some outliers like California, but when you look at all the data. But then uh, Derek Thompson layers in some other uh, studies that take into account more than the NAEP data. So there's a 2022 paper published by the National Center for Analysis on Longitudinal Data in Education Research. They looked at 2 million students in 10,000 schools across the country uh, and found that learning gaps in math did not widen in areas that remained in person, uh, but that especially in high-poverty areas, students lost more ground the longer they were remote. There was a 2022 Ohio State University study that showed the same And apparently he says that there's a study from Emily Oster that shows something similar. So you take those three data points with the NAEP data and you say, all right, common sense. If you're not in school, you're probably not learning as much. I think that's simple. We don't, it doesn't need to be, I I told you so, but I think we can then compare that to the public health data and say, all right, was it worth staying closed as long as we did? And I think it depends on where you are. I think San Francisco went too far. They were closed deep into the spring of 2021. Uh, and, you know, holding school board meetings about the renaming of a school to change it from Diane Feinstein School when when they should have been talking about, you know, how are we going to get these schools open? They fired their reopening consulting because they had ties to charter schools and then couldn't re- hire a new one. They just were unfocused on the question. Of their students getting back in the building and their own students were showing up to school board meetings pleading with them to reopen the schools. They also dragged their feet in working with the uh, parental learning hubs that were happening around the city because the teachers union didn't want them to cooperate because there were non-teacher, non-union teachers working there. That, to me, that's a travesty. That's different than New York, for example, that I think when the science was especially uncertain and scary, they kept the schools closed but then they earnestly tried to get them open in a hybrid model where they offered virtual learning for those who could who wanted to access it and in person, that to me seemed like a more sensible approach.
0: Yeah. I'm just not with it. What's the I edge? understand the reformers narrative around these things. Well, this kind of like, you know, the teachers union stopped districts from doing things and it's obvious that they should have done it sooner and they knew this and there were like motives and reasons for them not to open schools other than they had really valid local reasons. Listen, the schools that stayed closed the longest were schools in districts that had, in places that had higher public health problems. That's actually been proven by research. There's also been uh, proven by research that there were lots of local valid reasons for schools to stay closed that weren't part of the political discussion, that were part of the kind of boring public health uh, mitigation. There are school districts with declining kind of infrastructure where people are sitting on top of each other. Congratulations for your suburb that went back to school sooner and your big wide open building. Buildings with brand new HVAC in them um, and where you have no parents that are like uh, hesitant or teachers hesitant about coming into your decrepit buildings. Like we don't even talk about the fact that in many of these cities that it's the people of color, families of color that were the most hesitant that even when the schools reopened, half of them didn't show up right? They still didn't come back. So when you count kids who actually were not in school, uh, in person, it wasn't all because of political reasons. Half of those parents didn't even want their kids. I was among parents, That wasn't looking really forward. I'm a real actual parent with actual real kids in a real school district with an 87-year-old mother-in-law. We weren't real excited for our kids to get back in school right away. I don't care what, like, the Karens of San Francisco were preaching because they wanted to get their kids out of the house and back into the schools again, right? Like, that's, that's who is being given the most voice in this discussion. And I think there's some real unfortunate painting of there's valid reasons why some teachers didn't wanna go back into the buildings that they worked in there and students didn't wanna go back into them. And uh, yes, it was gonna have an impact on students. And even when the schools reopened, not everybody came back right away. Like that all makes sense to me. So I don't even know what the argument or the discussion is in retrospect. Is it to say, listen, I read a very important article in the New York Times, and I'm a virologist uh, by training or by trade. Well, no, not so much by training or trade, just because I picked up stuff in the media. And I told you, school board, that you should have opened sooner. You didn't listen to me. So now for the next 10 years, I'm going to keep saying it to you, even as you're trying to accelerate kids that you have back in school or whatnot. I don't understand what the relitigation is supposed to do, like for anybody. First of all, half the really kind of smug people that are pushing the relitigation actually weren't as right as they think they were, and they're not taking in many sophisticated factors like, like the ones I've just mentioned. Not everybody wanted to go back, and not everybody came back, and not all the teachers were wrong for not wanting to go into buildings in certain districts that weren't Pleasantville, that didn't that you couldn't trust the mit- mitigation efforts or whatnot, right? Like, what's supposed to come of the relitigation? But I
1: think that it that itself simplifies it in some ways, right? Which I get. Yeah, you're a parent. But also, there's a lot of parents who are not Karens and kids who aren't Karens who are very frustrated. Like, so for example, when I did the episode on the San Francisco School Board, for example, it was very clear to me. I interviewed parents of every possible background economically, racially in San Francisco. And the reason why that school board recall was so overwhelming was because people were so frustrated, not just with the fact that they weren't reopening schools, but because the school board itself and the teachers' union were blocking efforts to let the parents, take matters into their own hands and create learning hubs out of the schools with non-union teachers. And it wasn't just the Karens. There was a student named Zoe Zamotes who got up and this was April 6 2021 at the school board meeting when they still hadn't reopening. April, 2021. She got up and she was lecturing the school board, like, "What the fuck are you doing with your time? Why are we talking about renaming a school that was named after you know, you know, you know, um, U.S. senators like Feinstein or Abraham Lincoln? Like, why is this relevant today? You know, and not and we're firing reopening consultants and we're not having an honest yeah. conversation about how we can get these schools open, right? And and some of these people had to wait yeah. around for hours on these Zoom meetings." That we're talking about garbage. You were talking earlier about the, the right-wing version of the I remember yeah.
0: it. I, I talked yeah. about it. Like I talked about it back in the day, I think that school board was wacky. But how come we know her story and you're able to relate it, but we don't? We've seen no popular representation of all the families I just mentioned who actually did not want to come. That's back why and we, were that's and why we. That's why the Citizen Stewart so. show
1: is amazing, because we represent both of them. Exactly, uh,
0: exactly. Because you know what? Everybody you just mentioned has a microphone. They got lifted up. That that whole recall widely reported. Those parents widely reported. The frustrated parents widely reported. The upper middle in. Uh, Uh, middle-income families who are deeply frustrated with the san francisco public schools widely covered nationally not just even locally where is the coverage on all the people i just talked about which were a predominant number of of people of color in school districts that weren't super eager eager to get back in their decrepit schools Zoe is one microphone? of them.
1: She's a person of color. She just doesn't happen to have that. View. No, no, she's she's yeah, pitching yeah. your
0: side. She's she's good for the thing you just said. But what's the, where's the that? Where are the black families in I, San Francisco that didn't I, show up? Here's my reading of the, real the,
1: the reporting at the time. And I was pro closure in the beginning for sure. I think I just I came out of it a little earlier than some of my friends. Perhaps maybe earlier than you. Am I an epidemiologist? No. Neither of us are. But I think to me, it was just a matter of like doing my best as somebody who was, you know, has advised candidates and somebody who has a platform to be like, what is my best possible reading of the science? In the beginning, I was listening to people like Nicholas Christakis at the Yale School of Public Health who were like saying, look, here's what the data of previous pandemics tells us. And there's a really, really strong correlation between keeping schools closed longer and mitigation of pandemic efforts. I think what a lot of those public health experts who were pro closure early on realized was, whoa, this is lasting way longer than we realized. And, uh, like there are real trade-offs where people got to go to work. They need a place to put their kids. Right. And it's complicated. And to me, like the San Francisco is an example is like the reporting should follow the, uh, where the people are. The people of San Francisco spoke in that election overwhelmingly recalling that school board, from all corners of that city they were frustrated by it
0: the people let's let's be clear, clear about this there's a difference between the people of San Francisco and the people who voted for a recall that was well-funded campaign that did not reach everybody but there's a difference between those two populations so let's just we, let's be slightly accurate about our picture here the people of San Francisco are different than the people who voted in a one-off recall election of school board members, right? Those are different populations. And if you look at the money and the election and the campaign that was run and who voted and who was the most frustrated and the people even leading in in that, that's not the people of San Francisco broadly, that's a very specific set. It was successful. I wasn't unhappy about it. I thought that was one of the wackiest school boards ever. Three of the people recalled on there have called me names before. One of them actually had an epic Twitter battle with me uh, a couple years ago and I took her to task and I wrote about her or whatnot and she was the wackiest school board uh, member in America that I've ever seen. So I don't have any problem with the the outcome. I have no, no dog in the race, no dog in the hunt. But if I'm being accurate, and kind of precise is the better word. Precise about my language. I'm going to call that campaign out for what it was. But what was it? Right? I talked to uh, Adam and so, Raj, so. the
1: two people who led that, you know, their, their parents. Yeah. You know, the parents have a right. Mm-hmm. They weren't even from well, San Francisco. No. Well, they're actually okay. Upper Upper. They, live, they workers, live in right? San Francisco, which to me means they're from San Francisco, right? I grew up in New York City. Yeah, no, no. That's I grew up not in New York
0: City. city. That's, that, not, that's not what I don't. That fi- I don't
1: out. come up to people who've lived in New York for years and say you're not from New York. Like that's not how I operate. Our city. That's what our city is. Well, people would uh, do <laughs> that, by the
0: way, in New York. In your city,
1: they would do that. By the
0: way, don't give your don't give your city. Like a free pass. Well, okay, on this. I think I
1: think we'll just agree to disagree on that one. I think we can we can I think our listeners will get the sense that they're gonna they're gonna get a lot of San Francisco over time. So I'll I'll put a pin in the San Francisco discussion to say I look forward to coming back to analyzing those voter turnout numbers. Uh, but uh, but it. I think I'll take a step back and say look. I don't want to oversimplify pandemic closures in the sense that I got a lot of people in my life who are libertarians. I know you've swam in these circles. You do interviews with reason and all this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. These are your Mm -hmm. friends as Mm -hmm. much as they are mine. And I'm more Jared Polis than I am extreme libertarian. Jared Polis being the governor of, of Colorado, who kind of moved a little faster than a lot of other Democrats, but still is a man of science. To me, I don't fault anybody for being afraid in COVID. I don't fault anybody for wanting to protect their grandma. I don't fault anybody for trying to follow the science. Where I do fault people is if they're being lazy, if they're not adapting to the times, if they're not being flexible and allowing some people to access certain services while others stay remote and try to figure that out, right? And that's why I look at New York In Chicago, for example, maybe differently than I I look at places like San Francisco and a lot of the West Coast places, because in certain places I saw a good faith effort to try to figure it out for people with differing views on the science, whereas in some places I saw people arguing about bullshit.
0: Yeah, my bottom line on this one is I actually, like I started by saying I'm terribly disinterested in the conversation. I do think it's part of Democrat, right word, Democrat self-flagulation uh, and, and zero kind of culpability for the right in anything. And there is a whole set of centrist Democrats who actually lean so far to the right on some of these issues that they forget that there's actually more than one way to look at it, that not all Democrat cities and whatever, like, got this wrong. And oh, by the way, Nate did come out, we can poo-poo it, but the biggest, uh, um, COVID denying governor, uh, Ron DeSantis uh, state kind of sucked wind when it came, they came behind California, right, actually so yep. if you're looking at a Newsom versus, Newsom versus DeSandwich, uh, like I'm going to say that like, you know when I look at those two states, Florida and Florida's clearly a reform um, darling and they they got it all right they opened schools sooner than everybody else which by the way, can we talk at some point in the future about how weird it is for conservatives to, um, to hang their hat on how fast they got so many kids back into traditional public schools as if it was like th- their lives depended on it. After decades of talking about how terrible and how much we needed to get kids out of these schools and how worthless they were and how we may do better just to send kids home with an iPad which is something I've I know I was going to say, this way. sounds
1: familiar. Uh, when, you
0: know, uh, well, you know, yeah. When i railed on the public schools, I think we should you know, come back to this, but man, now you're running on now. Conservatives are running on how fast they got their kids. I back think we should come back to this, this at schools. some it's, point. It's Cause weird. I do think
1: that there's, there are some people who should be proud of how they figured this stuff out. I, I will say one last thing because I want to promise our audience that I will not utter the name of the city of San Francisco for a few episodes because I don't want them to think this is going to be a San Francisco bashing fest. I'll leave them with one salient, amazing fact about the school board of San Francisco, which is relevant to some of the discussions we've had today, is they were pushing people in that city, the school board, to not call it learning loss, but learning change. Oh, geez. Learning change. <laughs> That's the postmodern era that we're in now. Uh, and this is where progressives need to be really careful. So this kind of so bullshit. What? It's so like, what? oh, there is.
0: Yeah, well, help me. The so with the, so what, what is if you're a parent who's so saying, what? my kid
1: can't read because they haven't been in school for two years, yeah. and you're like, well, it's not that they can't yeah. read, it's reading change. You yeah. know? <laughs> you know? Like. I think that's going <laughs> to piss some parents off. And if the Republican comes to them or the conservative, because we're a C3 and we don't like to talk about political parties, like if that conservative comes to them and says, hey, I'm going to get that school open faster and I'm going to call it learning loss if we can't, that parent's going to be like, well, that makes some sense to me, you know?
0: Yeah, I totally now. Now that you call it learning loss, well, at I least totally you're acknowledging don't a problem. Care democracy. you? Your, your, um, you're a surgeon. Uh, I don't care. Look, I don't care about any I'm of these bleeding. other things that I I, I cared a, about. I have an open stab you know? wound in
1: my chest, and I go into the ER, and one doctor is like, "Well, it's just blood change. It's not blood loss." And the other doctor is, "Well, that's blood loss." Yeah. I'm gonna go with the doctor who at least acknowledges that there's blood seeping out of my chest. That's the politics of this, as yeah. I see it.
0: This is why I say it's a bad analogy. Just quickly, it's because um, just because someone calls something defines a problem the way that you don't like it doesn't mean that you change the portfolio of issues from one political party to the other that you've cared about your whole life. Like if you care about worker fairness and democracy and enfranchisement of every American into the democratic kind of scheme of things, voting rights, climate change, health care, um, fair treatment within courts and systems, uh, a fair judiciary and um, and honest police officers, blah, 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 go down the line. Because you called it learning loss, I'm going to drop all those things and I'm going to vote for De Sandwich? Uh, I don't think so.
1: Yeah, and we're a C3, which we clearly don't take a position on any races that are out there this is true Uh, but yeah it's not the it's not the end all but it is a step in a certain direction where parents feel like they might be heard but we'll come back to this discussion uh why don't you send us out chris on this spooky Halloween episode? Well, it is a spooky Halloween
0: episode. and Everything we just talked about actually is rather spooky. Uh, The fact that kids aren't learning to read across the nation and that we do have declining kind of fortunes when it comes to our students' learning. And the fact that it's taken so many people years and years and years and years to catch up and catch on is actually scary. So it should be the most frightening thing you think about today. If you watch like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's last version of the Halloween movie tonight, that's not going to be any more scary than the fact that we have 50 million kids walking into schools every day that are not ready to help them like hit their highest potential, do their best in life. And the future doesn't look real bright because of that. Who's going to get jobs in the future? Who's going to live a good American life? Who's going to get the Ford F-150 in their driveway and have like a decent house if they can't read They don't have a trade, they're not prepared. So this has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show with my friend Ravi and me. We appreciate you listening to this. If you like the show, share it with your friends and family and tell them it's the best thing that you've ever heard. If you're really energetic about it, you can leave us uh, a review on this show in addition to subscribing to it. You will hear from us every Tuesday. The show is gonna be there for you. It's gonna be your warm, comfortable blanket throughout the winter, so subscribe. Share, write a a review, and we will see you next week.